Hey, this is Thor from Cybrary. If you've been enjoying the Cybrary podcast or one of our other series like 401 Access Denied or Go For It with Sarah Moffat, then make sure to like, follow, or subscribe so that you don't miss any future episodes. And we'd love to hear from you. Join the discussion by leaving us a comment or review on your platform of choice or emailing us at podcast at cybrary.it and you could be featured in a future episode. From all of us at Cybrary, thank you and enjoy the show. You're listening to the 401 Access Denied Podcast. I'm Mike Rowan, VP of Engineering and CISO at Cybrary. Please join me and my co-host, Joseph Carson, Chief Security Scientist at Thycotic, as we discuss the latest news and attempt to make cybersecurity accessible, usable, and fun. Be sure to check back every two weeks for new episodes. Hi, and welcome back to another episode of the 401 Access Denied podcast. I'm your co-host, Mike Ruin, VP of Engineering and CISO here at Cybrary. And once again, I'm joined by my co-host, Joe Carson uh, from Thycotic. Joe, you want to give us an intro and, and tell us what we're going to be talking about today? Absolutely. It's a pleasure to be back. And hopefully everyone's been enjoying the recent episodes. But uh, we have a very special episode today, which I'm really excited to have a really well-recognized and uh, well-respected industry expert. So it's fantastic to have such a special guest on the show today. So Dave Kennedy, welcome to the episode of 401 Access Tonight. And uh, today we're going to be really going into, you know, a day in the life of a security expert and researcher. Um, so and really covering a lot of important topics, things that are really important in the industry. So Dave, uh, welcome to the show. Uh, do you want to give us a bit of background into what you do at TrustedSec and uh, the things basically you, you, you deliver to the industry? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for having me on today. I really look forward to it. And uh yeah, I've um, been in the security industry for over 20 years, everything from a chief security officer um, all the way to, you know, security researcher. Uh, I always like to maintain my technical roots uh, in everything that I do. Uh, that's what I enjoy as my hobbies. So even though I'm a CEO of two companies, TrustedSec and Binary Defense, um, I'm always in the weeds, uh, you know, developing tools and, and hacking into customers and doing all the fun stuff that uh, we get to do. But it's great because, you know, we have teams now that that do all that stuff and I get to learn from a lot of other people and, and really you know, work back and forth mm -hmm. with some just brilliant individuals where, you know, we're helping organizations get better with security. We're pushing research forward. You know, uh, we're looking at what other groups and adversaries are doing to ensure that we, we stay up to date with, with everything that's happening. It's a, you know, it's a continuously moving industry mm -hmm. and uh, being, you know, part of that is just uh, just an awesome thing. So yeah, thanks again for having me. I look forward to the discussions today. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, that's, I mean, for me, I've, I've also, you know, 25 years in the industry and every day I'm learning something new. And it's really important. One of the things I find is, you know, surrounding myself with industry peers where we all come from different backgrounds and different skill sets. Um, but every time I'm talking to them, listening to them, I'm always learning something new and interesting. And I think that's what's really important. It's it's an industry where, uh, you know, some people forget that, you know, there's a large portion, which is, you know, that, you know, day-to-day -day administrative stuff, the things you have to do. Um, but you do have to spend, I spend a, probably a large amount of my time, 30%, I think, into actually continuous learning. And continuous understanding, you know, you know, I'm not the greatest developer, but you know, I always get my hands dirty in things like Python uh, scripting. You know, you know, my background in, in Perl is not the best these days, or Cobol, but it's always that continuous learning. Um, even Perl getting into, uh, you know, looking into. <laughs> yeah, it's Perl was one of my scripting languages a long time ago, um, but uh, not not the greatest that it, you know, let's say. Um, if it was still been used today, I'd be quite surprised. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, absolutely. You know, continuous learning is something that I think is very valuable. I spend 30%, probably of my time, 
just even getting into understanding and pulling things apart. Um, so, I mean, Dave, you mentioned, you know, you're, you're still hands-on. I mean, how much of the time are you spending continu- continuous learning? And where do, you, where do you kind of pull that educational information from? Where do you get it from? Uh, how do you continue that? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. You know, um, you know when you're running uh, multiple companies, the, the biggest thing is, you know, time management is, is so important. You know, time management for yourself, you know, yeah. personally, you know, your family, those types of things. Um, but also, you know, where do you spend most of your time at? And for me, you know, some of the biggest areas are, you know, I've put in a great leadership structure, both at Trusted Second Binary Defense, that the companies really run, you know, autonomously, mm-hmm. you know, with with the great leadership structure. So allow it affords me a lot of time uh, to be able to focus on, you know, making sure that we're staying visionary um, in the company, you know, that we're, you know, ahead of the curve when it comes to what adversaries are doing and that our teams are top notch, mm-hmm. you know, the type of work that we're doing is important. So, you know, I would say that, you know, I'm, I'm definitely in the 30 to 40 percent range of research and, and understanding mm-hmm. and, and spending time, you know, to to dive into what we're doing, um, hopping on engagements and, and you know, um, helping out with 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 customer environments. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for me, it's 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 making sure that I spend my time appropriately to ensure that I can still stay, um, you know, at a top level with, in, in my career, because I don't want that to ever, you know, atrophy yeah. or to, to go away. You know, as you mentioned, the industry changes all the time. And, you know, you can easily fall behind with everything that's going on there. So for me, you know, I work very closely with our threat intelligence team, uh, understanding what's happening from, mm-hmm. you know, an adversary perspective, what different groups are doing, which groups are prominent. You know, what are we seeing from from a capabilities perspective? Obviously, in the news, you see the stuff with like JBS and Colonial and all those different ones. You know, what is what is Revil up to? You know, what do they look like? Um, you know, uh, what are they doing from a capabilities perspective? Um, is there anything there that we need to, to add to simulate those types of, of, of environments? Um, and, and, you know, on, on the, the trusted tech side, you know, working with our research and development teams uh, on our weaponization and tooling. Uh, you know, we like to do a lot of cool research and cool things that, that we don't disclose or publish that we, you know, kind of go out and do do things uh, in, in the wild with with our customers. Um, you know, those types of things are, are, are really um, a lot of the focus areas, uh, maintaining, you know, internal tools, maintaining internal methodologies, um, you know, updating mm-hmm. how we do things and communicating that out. Those are all important things for me uh, to go and do. So I really rely heavily off of my team. But also, you know, social media is a great area um, for researchers. You know, you look at what mm-hmm. a lot of the great researchers out there are doing, like Dirk Eon from an Azure perspective. And, you know, there's just so many great researchers sharing their information out there that, you know, you start to see, OK, well, hey, this is an area that, yeah. that you know, I'm not familiar with. And I, I want to dive down into it. And I have the flexibility to say, OK, well, I'm going to spend four hours on this mm-hmm. to understand what this is or spend a couple of days on this uh, to understand what it is because it's relevant to, to my interests. And. You know, I think that's the cool thing about the industry is that, you know, we're very keen on, you know, collaboration, sharing and building upon one another, um, mm-hmm. which you don't see in a lot of other industries. And and that's really, you know, how this industry continues to move forward. And, you know, there's a lot of discussions on, on you know, uh, uh, offensive security tools and whether or not you should publish them or not. But, you know, at the end of the day, we're all very passionate about what we're doing to try to protect. And there's different ways of of how we do that. Right. Um, and different beliefs around how you you secure organizations and you know, whether or not you release offensive security tools or not, you know, at the end of the day, you know, collaboration, I think, is, is really key. And I think the collaboration we've seen between red and blue um, offensive defense ha- has really made this industry substantially stronger. Yeah, I agree totally. And I think, you know, it's sort of I think it's a little short sighted to think about it in terms of like if the if we're not all sharing our tools and our knowledge, the, the other side absolutely is. They're yes. all working together. They're all sharing this information. And so there's no way we can ever compete if yeah. we're not also doing that same level of sharing. And I think that's a, and that's an important part that, you know, there's, there's very little well, security going back, that comes you know, through obscurity, right? Like there's a place for it, but we've all been in this industry yeah. for, for a number of years, you know, you, you, you flash back 10, 15 years ago, 
And, you know, red, you know, red teaming or, you know, at that time, you know, early penetration testing, you know, was kind of a, a mystic art, you know, it was like a mystic dark art where no one knew what we were doing, right? We had all these crazy tools and these exploits and all this stuff that we never shared. And we would, you know, specifically focus from a red teaming perspective on, well, here's your technical flaws that you have. And you wouldn't understand the tradecraft that went into that. And so what happened with organizations and companies is, you know, um, they would fix and plug these holes, but they didn't look at, at what happens after, you know, initial access is established. And, you know, changing our frame of mind mm -hmm. that it's not all about creating this castle because we can never have a castle anymore, especially with, you know, cloud infrastructure and, our, you know, work from home and everything else that's going on out there. You know, we have to focus on what happens if an intruder is successful and what does that look like from an attacker's perspective around privilege escalation, mm -hmm. lateral movement, post-exploitation scenarios that we see out there. And that was largely a very, very um, close kept secret in the security industry during those periods of time. And companies didn't progress forward. In fact, mm -hmm. they, they probably got worse, you know, down the road. And then when you started to see, well, now we're starting to understand these offensive capabilities. We're starting to understand what this looks like. Now companies actually have a defensible approach where they can say, well, if we invest in monitoring detection and we can boot out an attacker day one versus day six, day 10, day 15, day 20, you know, six months down the road, um, we have a much better way of, of mm -hmm. handling our risk, you know, as an organization. And we don't ever want to go back to that. You know, the, the collaboration of sharing tools, um, being able to, to simulate uh, what an actual attacker would do and to also emulate that too, you know, known specific mm -hmm. TTPs and stuff like that. The, that sharing and collaboration is so invaluable uh, that to me, it continuously progresses forward. Now, there's responsibility that we have to have in it. You know, we don't want to drop a zero mm -hmm. day, you know, um, you know, when people aren't patched. And, you know, there's, there's discussions around, well, yeah. when's appropriate time to actually release a POC after a patch has been, you know, those are all good discussions, I think, to have. But at the end of the day, we have to have the same types of tools uh, and the same type of, of collaboration that the organized crime groups that the nation states do in order for us to have any type of, of, of way of, of handling these types of, of threats in the future. Absolutely. For me, I'm always worried about the unknown, and I'd rather get things out there as quickly as possible so you actually know how to deal with the threat. You know how to deal with it because once it's out there, um, then you actually understand what the risks are how you can mitigate it, how you can harden it, and how you can actually make it more difficult. Because one of my things is that I, I agree that once the attacker's in the door, I've actually found that, you know, it's actually better to force the attackers to take more risks. If you get them to actually take more risks and repeating their techniques and processes over and over again, and you provide them more hurdles to go through, what happens is you force them to create more noise. And I find, find that the more noise they create in the network, the more chance you have of detecting them um, and that better chance that you have of basically preventing them from doing something catastrophic to your business. And that's ultimately kind of what we look to do is that you assume, you always assume breached. You always assume that they have access. Um, in a lot of cases I've done in response, I end up finding that you, you find another attacker that's on the network at the same time because you're starting to look, you're starting to actually pull through the logs. You find that you're not just dealing with one attacking group, you're dealing with multiple. Um, maybe they have different motives in the, in the environment, but that's some, a lot of times you uncover is that you're dealing with sometimes with multiple groups. Um, what's your thoughts around, around those is that when you're actually getting into those and you're starting to do threat hunting, should organizations always assume that they're breached and, and continually looking? Yeah. Um, first of all, you know, a couple topics there that I want to hit on. If you look at something like Hafnium, for example, where, mm -hmm. you know, China was was actively exploiting, yeah. you know, 20,000, 30,000 plus, you know, on-premise exchange servers, you know, the cat's out of the bag at that point in time, right? You know, so, you know, what was interesting to see is that when, when Hafnium was, was being exploited, the patch was out for about a week, a proof of concept came out and GitHub removed that proof of concept out from the system, which, 
you know, I can tell you that our friends and students and responders, once they had <laughs> access to that POC, it was substantially easier for them to look for artifacts on those systems and to be able to identify what was occurring. The collaboration that we had between the red team and the incident response over a trusted tech, you, you're not going to get that. If you're just looking at it from a pure incident response perspective, well, Microsoft release was not sufficient to do a, a full investigation on an incident response side. So, you know, that type of release helps things out. And the POC intentionally broken, missing a very key critical part for remote code execution, yet it was still removed. Um, and, and, we can't have that. You know, we, we have to be transparent about what's occurring out there. Yeah. And I can understand if it's an O day and no one's patched, but I also understand, listen, it takes time for these organizations to patch as well. And, you know, it, and we have to be very mindful of that. We have a responsibility for that. I probably would have waited a little bit longer to, to release a POC, but at the end of the day, we shouldn't be hindering mm -hmm. researchers. Um, but on that point, you know, threat hunting is, is probably one of the, the largest missing links that I see in most organizations. Um, you know, you look at the cyclical effect of security operation centers and, you know, traditionally socks just sit there and they have the default alarms that they get in their SIM or their EDR product. And they assume that they're fine and good and it never matures. You know, they rely heavily off of the technology itself versus trying to understand what attack patterns could potentially happen in their environment. So things like assume breaches uh, where you come in and you go through a series of emulation cycles or if you're at, at a level to handle simulations, um, you know, you start to look at their environment and say, well, here's where you have gaps in your, in, in your environment where you can't identify, you know, specific threats mm -hmm. in those, those specific chains. And your whole goal is, you know, if you look at something like the minor attack framework, is to have really good coverage and effectiveness um, of those different types of attacks that can happen throughout different stages of an attack. So that, as you'd mentioned, you know, it, it creates more and more noise so that you're responding to those much more effectively. So for me, threat hunting and going through you know, the cycle of looking at not just north to south, but east to west traffic, looking at parent uh, process relationships, you know, uh, mm -hmm. persistence hooks like registry modifications, uh, you know, PowerShell syntax, uh, you know, scripting languages, living off the land. You know, there's a whole attack surface, you know, mm -hmm. specifically on Windows, Linux and OSX that we need to be able to identify to, uh, you know, look for unusual patterns of behavior and baseline that that pattern of behavior in our environment if it's normal, if it's legit, and then look for those deviations. Mm -hmm. And that's really where threat hunting comes into place. And the missing link is that threat hunting team also has to provide um, a input mechanism for the security operation center to get better at monitoring detection. So it becomes this, this circle where, you know, your SOC is, is improving, your threat hunting, you know, teams are assuming that there's a breach and you're going through those cycles of looking through information. They're building detections based off of the threat models and the different adversaries that are in play. And all of a sudden your entire, you know, security operation center and your monitoring detection program, you know, elevates very fast, uh, faster mm -hmm. than it ever has before because it's not staying in that stagnant state. But a lot of companies can't grasp that concept of, yeah. well, we install the tool, we're good. You're not good. You know, you're, you're yeah. it's Well, the other thing on that, I mean, I've, yeah. having worked on, you know, um, user entity behavioral analytics, mm -hmm. but, you know, uh, product, right? One of the things we know is that like machine learning and AI, like AI is, you know, just a bunch of if statements and automation and, and machine learning is all well and good, but like you can fool these models. You can, if you do things right, those tools will never detect it as an anomaly because it's not an anomaly anymore. Mm -hmm. And so you have to be active. You have to, you have to put on, you know, a human has to get yeah. involved at some point and you can't just rely on these tools and these technologies, yeah. which can be fooled, which can be taken advantage of and make you feel like you're secure when really you're not anymore. And, you know, I think that's a, an area that's missed and, yeah. uh, by a lot of organizations as well. Yeah.
In addition to that, one of the things, Dave, I got into, it, it reminds me years ago, I, I dealt with a, we basically, fortunate enough, we prevented a major breach from happening. And it was, what was happening was we were actually going to deploy it ourselves, but what prevented it from happening, actually the, the attackers gain access to a software catalog, basically embedded and executable. We were going to deploy that using basically a software delivery mechanism. And ultimately what happened was, is that the, the attacker knew they knew our basically schedule. They knew basically everything we were going to be doing. They had, they had access to our calendars and project. But what happened was we basically had a gut feeling. We decided to do unpredictability. We decided to do just this ad hoc and let's double check. Let's run basically file heists against all the libraries to make sure we have the right versions. And all of a sudden we had a mismatch. Something that was unpredicted, you know, something that was ad hoc, just something we just basically did, you know, Spurringly, without having a plan or, or having you know basically you know a project behind it, we decide let's do this, let's do it right now. How should organization? I think for me, even when I you know get into instance and I look at the logs, there's so much noise out there when you do have an attacker that's in the environment. You'll see a lot of the data in the logs. It's right there in front of it. It's just organizations are not looking sometimes in the right places. Um, should organizations get into more doing those types of ad hoc, let's say sporadic? Um, unpredictable types of basically, you know, looking at logs, going, let's go all of a sudden and look in this location. Let's go and look at the logs on certain systems and see, is everything clean? Is there any, you know, suspicious activity? How, how should organizations really get into, you know, getting outside of the norm? Just, let's say, relying on those, you know, default settings and, and uh, uh, predictable, you know, uh, outcomes. I think, I think you hit the nail on the head from the perspective of you need to kind of understand and know your environment, right? And, and look for, the differential behaviors that occur in your environment that are not normal, um, and 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 there, you know these are you know when you look at at the different techniques that attackers use, I mean, it's not rocket science. The majority of them use the same type of methods, right? You look at um, uh, um, Revo, for example. Um, you know they, they they focused on living off the land and run DLL thirty two injection, you know for for DLL mm-hmm. injection to download their binary. Same thing happened for you know Darkside. Um, you look at the most latest um, uh, attack coming from, you know, the same group that was um, specifically behind SolarWinds, um, you know, the, the Russian um, FSB attacks. Mm-hmm. You know, when you look at that, you know, the methods, it, you know, everybody looks at that. Oh, my gosh, they use an ISO file to mount it to get their malware. But if you look at all the stages afterwards, you know, that occurred, well, yes, they might have used kind of a novel attack mm-hmm. on the using an ISO as a way to get around and skirt around detection. Mm-hmm. But then you look at like, OK, well, they use run DLL 32 to import in you know, this executable, this binary, which then calls out and downloads mm-hmm. your second stage, which then calls run DLL32 again, which then, you know, does registry modifications in, in, in you know, um, in, in run for registry modifications for persistence. Like all of those are like clear mm-hmm. red flags that something's wrong in your environment, right? You don't see those happen right. on a regular basis. So, you know, there, are, there are, are very specific patterns that we can look for in our environment. And one of my, my biggest areas that I love going through, like I can spend all day, all night looking at parent-child process relationships. Like I, I get so much value from parent-child <laughs> process relationships because you can literally spot an attacker, you know, uh, unless they're extremely, extremely yep. good, um, you know, in those parent-child process relationships. Like for example, why is export.exe kicking off, outlook.exe kicking off, excel.exe kicking off, excel.exe? It's like, boom, you know, you have something mm-hmm. right there that you need to go and investigate, clear as day. Um, you know, it could be a business process, right? But most likely yep. probably not. Um, so, you know, I think it's really important for organizations to, one, A, focus on visibility, number one. You know, we need to have access to the data. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so installing things like Sysmon, for example, Windows uh, event log tracing for, win- uh, event log tracing for Windows uh, is f- fantastic, right, from a, lo- a logging perspective. Or 
ways that you can get other mm-hmm. logs off of your systems to centralize them to be able to conduct these types of activities. And then getting into a cyclical effect, you know, and, and it doesn't need to be, you know, you look at some organizations that have dedicated threat hunters that are doing it every single day, every single minute, every single exercise, you know, most organizations can't do that. Um, but you know, let's just say you're gonna do it once a month or mm-hmm. once a quarter, you know, to go through that data to have that visibility yeah. and to look for those those abnormal patterns. And then from there, writing detection so that you don't see mm-hmm. them again. You know, that is that is a way to continuously improve your monitoring and detection capabilities in your environment that most organizations mm-hmm. just don't go through. And it's just carving a day out, carving two days out, carving an hour out, carving a lunch out, and just mm-hmm. going through that data to, to figure something out. And, 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 you know, and getting into a cyclical effect of doing that that regularly, I think, is really important. Yeah. It's interesting because mm-hmm. that you mentioned that because it reminds so my background as a software engineer, one of the things that we enjoy doing and uh, we recently did at Cybrary was like a hackathon, mm-hmm. right? Where the software devs and sales and all ports of the different organization work together to like come up with cool, unique product features and, and whatever. And hack hackathons have been sort of proven like pretty successful yeah. for like jumpstarting innovation, doing that, taking that same sort of idea and applying it and saying like, hey, you know what, we're going to carve out two days yeah. and we're going to do like more of like a, like a real mm-hmm. hackathon of like actually, hack, you know, doing, looking at our systems um, and and doing that, I think is an interesting. Hackathons um, are great. Mm-hmm. Um, you, know, um, you know, there's a number of like companies that, that, that yeah. you know, we do work with that have, you know, regimented hackathons where anybody can kind of compete and they either, you know, have simulated environments they run through, but, you know, like that type of stuff, you know, mm-hmm. creates, you know, a lot of, um, creativity. And it also, you know, from a software development perspective, you know, one of the things I remember I was doing an assessment for an organization and we were completely flying underneath the radar. We had access to a bunch of systems mm-hmm. and we were, we were high-fiving each other because this was a really tough customer to get into from a red teaming perspective. And we had accessed um, a database uh, from another server to get some of the, the data for that, that database. And literally, the database administrator um, had done a hackathon and was super paranoid about uh, unusual connections um, to their database and was monitoring all the IP addresses coming into the server, like literally real time. Like he had a window open of, you know, source and destinations. And I'm like, seriously, someone actually does that? <laughs> it caught on, you know, you know, you know, and it was because of that hackathon that literally spawned, you know, his his interest of like, well, I'm going to look for unusual patterns because, you know, I, you know, I own this 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 infrastructure. You know, and, and I'm in charge of it, so I'm going to, you know, ensure that, you know, no one's connecting to it from an unusual perspective and literally, you know, snagged us, you know, you know, and it blew up the whole thing. So, you know, we had to, go, you know, start from ground zero again. So, you know, those types of things are, are huge and getting people into that mindset to understand offensive capabilities is fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. I think one, one of the things you mentioned earlier that I think is is critical is you mentioned about the red team, blue team working together. We have this more concept of purple teaming now. Um, and I think for me, I think that's one of the things that organizations really need to embrace because it's how you basically cross pollinate, you know, similar to hackathons, you bring a lot of people from different skills and, you know, re, you know, backgrounds and knowledge together in order to pair them up into basically creating something great, innovative. And I think that's really where we need to have from a red team and a blue team perspective is we need the defenders to know the techniques and the methods that attackers use. So basically we need to educate them because it really helps basically, you know, one of the things I always say is that the best way you can defend is knowing hacker techniques. You know, basically the methods that they use, so you can actually know what to look for. Just as you mentioned that, you know, the, the person looking for those database connections, basically once they knew that that was something to look for, they implemented and been monitoring it consistently. How important is, is Purple Teams today? Um, and is it something you see as, as much more, you know, the industry needs to embrace and develop further in the future? 
I'm such a huge advocate of of purple teaming. In fact, I think it's it's one of the I think the industry has gotten, and I understand why the industry has gotten caught up on just doing penetration tests, and then they hear the sexy word red teaming. And I would say ninety percent of the customers that we perform red teams on are nowhere near the ability to handle a red team or, or what a red team engagement produces, because you know a red team is is really you know there's a, a big difference between adversary emulation and adversary simulation. Mm-hmm. And adversary emulation, you're taking known tactics, techniques, and procedures of attackers. Um, and you're working, you know, collaboratively to figure out where you have gaps and weaknesses in from your, your monitoring detection program, that purple teaming aspect where, you know, it's not about being covert. It's about being overt. You know, you're you're spending time mm-hmm. with the blue team and going back and forth and you walk out of there with 20 kick butt, you know, detections um, that you never had before that are high mm-hmm. fidelity, high, you know, like confidence, you know, detections out there that that, you know, are going to help identify attackers now that you didn't have before in the past. And they want to skip that step and say, well, I want a red team. I want to simulate this nation state, at this sophistication level. And then you completely wreck them. And they're like, well, we, what are we supposed to do with this? I'm like, exactly. Like, you're not at a point yet to handle the simulation efforts because your program's not mature enough yet to get to that specific point. So our whole goal should really be, you know, listen, if you need penetration tests for validation, you know, for verification, that, that makes sense, right? You know, compliance, et cetera, whatever. But really, our efforts should be doing more overt testing um, to understand where do we have weaknesses in that not just the initial access phase around, hey, we, we, we found a technical exposure to, to exploit or to fish a user or whatever. But you know, assume that there's a breach there. And what happens after all these different phases of an attack to really build your detections out? And that's really where we need to mature as an industry because not a lot of companies mm-hmm. do it. And it just boggles my mind because I'd rather walk out of an engagement with 20 new detections then have one or two technical fixes that I'm going to fix and maybe, you know, some strategy things that I need to fix, but I'm not walking out of there with, with anything that's really made my security program substantially better. Yeah. And being on the, you know, uh, having, I think a number of years ago sort of made a similar mistake where, you know, we wanted to pair, you know, we hired a security company and we started working with them. We're like, we don't even like the nice thing was we went into it going like, we just know that we need to improve our security. We don't really like, and, and like, so how, what's going to work best. And, you know, in our head, it was like, yeah, obviously we want you guys to do like a pen test. And they went through the exact same explanation of like, we can guarantee that we're going to get in. Let's, <laughs> let's not do that. Let's actually help you like to understand what you really need. And let's go through all of this. And and that was so beneficial and so eye-opening and and so much better than right. And and that conversation of like, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna get in. That's a that's just a waste of, you know, 20, 30, 10, whatever, thousands of dollars. Mm-hmm. Uh that you're, well, you're gonna get too, like one is, or two is, things you know, out of. Um so when I think you're getting an assessment done, let's just say by a third party or even your internal organization, you're mm-hmm. you're very much locked into a fixed time window. So you have this amount of time to complete. And so, you know, a lot of customers are like, well, hey, I want you to get around our EDR. I want you to do this. I want you to do this. I want you to do this. So, so we'll spend all this time getting around their products. And by the time we, we get access to a system, you know, and, and we have remote code execution and we're on a system, you know, we're already 80% through the hours that we've already done. And so, again, your, your value is, is substantially lower of what you're getting for those types of engagements. Yes, we proved we can own you. Great. That, that, that's anybody, Right. But what happens right. after the fact, and our mindsets really have to shift right. away from that initial access component. Yes, it's important mm-hmm. to do vulnerability management. Yes, it's important to build protective mechanisms to shut a lot of these things down ahead of time. It's important to have multi-factor authentication, network segmentation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But at the same time, what happens when an attacker is successful 
And can we identify those different stages of an attack and boot them out much faster? And that's really what our mind shift has to be in security in order to have any type of defensible approach. I guarantee you, I don't know anything about Colonial's you know, program, but you know, rumor is they had McAfee, you know, the malware itself shut down McAfee. The first thing they did was shut down McAfee. That was their only way of identifying a threat. So attackers literally had maintained access across their entire environment, you know, after that, that component was, was eliminated. You can't have that. Like we have to be focusing on all the different stages after, if they get around our preventative mechanisms. And this isn't a knock on McAfee or anything else. I'm just saying, you know, you you went out the window, you know, once McAfee was circumvented. So. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. In a lot of the cases, what I see, and, and, you know, one of the things I've learned a lot is basically from adversary techniques, actually going into the instance and, you know, preventing them or stopping them midway through the attack and all the things they've left behind. That's where I learn. I've learned so much basically attackers leaving a lot of breadcrumbs and scripts and everything behind and ultimately what you have to find similar you know the ones you mentioned is that you might have a lot of security on it on an endpoint on a device or a server but if you're giving somebody local administrator rights on that system all of a sudden they simply run a script and it switches everything off they can do the changes modifications um they can you know change the registry at least make it a little bit difficult for them you know (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah Exactly, but but that's it. Some people have a mis, you know, uh, assumption that since they're running these, but they sometimes assume that a local administrator right on a system is limited to just that one system. But basically, what it simply allows them to turn it into a staging machine, that that machine can simply be turned into something that can then be used for enumerating the entire network uh, for them. Basically, they will be standing and watching and living off the land and learning about what other security defenses you've been placed. Um, so you know, absolutely, I think you're right. Is that sometimes you know. Let's assume that you already have access. Let's assume you have, you know, get access to a system and the environment, and let's do the test from there to see if you're triggering the right alarms. That if you're creating enough noise so that your defenders can actually detect it. And I think that's that's really where we need to stop assuming that there is that castle, that there is that perimeter anymore. We have to assume that you know it's the perimeter's gone. They're in the network. How can we further detect them when they're in that network? How can we make sure we have that visibility? And and what you said right there for some reason is so difficult for organizations to understand. You know, they assume that, hey, we bought this mm-hmm. firewall, we bought this, you know, specific piece of technology, we're good to go, <laughs> right? And, 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 and what they don't recognize is that there's more things after that that we have to focus on. It doesn't just stop at preventative. And, and you know, when you start going through these, these emulations mm-hmm. where you assume a breach occurs and you're starting to test, you know, what you can see from, an, you know, and, and, you know, again, you know, when you start to go through these assumed breaches, you know, there are preventative things you can put in place to shut them down, too. So it's not just detective. It's also, you know, mm-hmm. hey, is there a preventative mechanism that we're not using? For, for example, you know, why should a mm-hmm. regular user ever call RegSVR32? There's no reason, right? You know, in, in the system yeah. directory, it commonly uses a living up the land for remote code execution and downloading. Mm-hmm. You know, so can we disallow RegSVR32 from ever being, you know, used from our, you know, from an application control or, app, or allow listing perspective, you know, to say, okay, well, we're just going to shut yeah. this down from a regular user context. You know, there are preventative things that we can gleam off of this that make it much more difficult for adversaries. And for those that we can't do preventative mechanisms, mm-hmm. placing in detective controls, you know, allow us to be able to identify them as it's going along. But you have to go through those cycles. Again, the industry is like, well, hey, <clears throat> I had a pen test done this year. and We did awesome. You know, we're great. You know, well, OK, that, that's that's one specific mm-hmm. test. How do you actually fare when there's a compromise in your environment? And, and as you had mentioned, assuming a breach has occurred, testing it from after, a, you know, after initial access. And going in after that um, mm-hmm. is, is insanely valuable. Uh, and purple teaming literally should be 
what we're focusing on 90% of the time, not, not the, mm-hmm. you know, um, covert testing that we typically do. So, and I think, I think what's mm-hmm. causing some of, I, I, I'm, I'm optimistic in terms of the shift because I think the costs, I think it's, I think part of the reason why it's been so hard is not mm-hmm. that the organization itself can't like understand it or, or grasp it. It's more that the costs haven't been as clear, like yeah. the risk and the, and how much it's going to cost mm-hmm. me if this were to happen and so on and so forth. And those costs just continue to go up and up and up. And so I think more and more organizations you, are being forced to look, sort of look at the news right now with, with um, you know, Colonial Pipeline yeah. and JBS. You know, you know, these aren't sophisticated mm-hmm. actors. This isn't like, you know, nation state Russia coming in from a supply chain perspective for remote code execution and tucking mm-hmm. back doors in and pushing updates out. Right. You know, these are our relatively less sophisticated attackers using common techniques that we all are very, very well aware of. But yet the shock of that um, and the, the, you know, what executive, I mean, like, I, I can't tell you how many board calls I've had with different companies. Like, what are we doing for ransomware? Like, hey, by the way, we should have been talking about this 10 years ago, not now. But, but yeah. second, <laughs> right. you, know, um, you know, here's the things that we need to start focusing on. And, and I think you're right. I think that conversation of, of mm-hmm. well, maybe we aren't protected. Maybe we don't have the right controls in place. Maybe we do need to look at this. I think that's starting to happen now. And I think the the... Businesses are really starting to understand the destructive nature of what's actually occurring here. We've been talking about it for years, like, you know, critical infrastructure attacks. We've been talking about for since I started in the industry 20 plus years ago, right? We've been crying wolf forever. It just finally happened, right? Right, I remember I was on a um, panel over at Rapid7 and and I was on there with HD Moore. And uh, HD was wrong, by the way. I'll have to call it out there. He's a good good, good friend. Uh, um, But he was right. No, he, he, he was just too fast to think about it. He said... You know, I, I believe we'll see a major attack on, you know, our oil and gas, you know, that could be potential loss of life or major shortages or things like yeah. that. This was probably, you know, six years ago. And he said, I think it's going to happen within the next year. You know, so he was right. You know, he was he was right on, on what was going to happen. Just timing was a little bit off. Right. And yeah. and I think that's what we're seeing now is that, you know, it's real. It's happening. It's happening to larger and larger organizations. You look at universal mm-hmm. health systems that shut down their ERs. You know, you look at Acer computers. They couldn't manufacture computers. You know, you look at all these different companies now that are that are mm-hmm. pretty large, you know, organizations are being, you know, completely shut down. I think, you know, companies are like, OK, we're, we're on notice now. The government's not going to protect us. We have to do something. So what is that? And, and, and I think that conversation is finally starting to occur. Yeah, I mean, I agree. It's, it's a couple of years too late. I mean, we've already had, you know, WannaCry and NotPetya. Uh, we had the Ukrainian energy sector shut down. So these are things we've known for several years. Um, but you know, but, it's, but I it's think always that's been a bit we're... further away. It's been, you know, it's been those we, other companies can't get our meats, that's, you know, impacted, but... that's a major problem. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right, right. Yeah. right. If I'm filling garbage bags with gasoline, <laughs> then... I don't know if it was real or not, but it was <laughs> like two guys with, with, with AR-15s you know, with, you know, plastic bags, filling plastic bags up, guarding these plastic bags with the AR-15s. I'm like, man, stuff is getting real. I mean, like, this stuff is getting real. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I saw a video of a guy filling uh, filling the back of his uh, his uh, pickup truck. And is I was like, are you going to drive around crazy. with gasoline just right? sloshing around back there? Uh, and it, you know, and, 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 <laughs> something, one, one fear, well, yeah. fear makes people do something. It wasn't things. that bad it really was not that bad right like we had like a week of of disruption which i'm not saying is was a good thing but it wasn't like we we're looking at months of outages or things like that you know it was but but you see how much chaos this creates by one organization 85 plus percent critical infrastructure owned by private sector 
you know, can cause a disruption from a cyber perspective. I think it's finally clicking to people that like, hey, it's not just our iPhone that can get hacked. It's not just, you know, our computer and our pictures that get stolen. It's like literally how we live our daily lives Mm -hmm. and and the complete disruption to our food, to our energy, to our water. I mean, all this stuff now is possible. We've known it's possible in the security industry, but now executives are like, whoa, like Mm -hmm. we've neglected security forever. We actually need to do something here now. Right. Or invested. maybe not neglected, but certainly not invested uh, would, as much as we should have. Uh, I, would, I, would, I, I mean, I, I would say you know, a lot I, of organizations I, have, <laughs> have just done the bare minimum to even call right, it the, security. That's that's the challenge. Right. I mean, I think there is a lot of box checking. There is a lot of, oh, well, we want to get this contract. What do we have to do? Oh, well, we have to pay these guys some amount of money so we can check yeah. this box. There's no, so, there's no question about that. So they, I, I do want to get back to the purple team yeah, and I, like, I see learning and similar. stuff. Yeah, I want to get um, you know I want to see I want to kind of get around the security research side of things and the purple teaming side is right. that how important is security research in the industry today because and the sharing side of things um, I'd like to get your thoughts because sometimes I find that there's a, a negative perception against the security research industry um, especially from a media perspective um, that creates that negative and and I always find it most you know I I consider myself a hacker but um, the problem is that that's such a bad persona. Um, a bad, basically, recon, you know, recognition in the media industry that they see as is the hacker is such a bad person. But majority are good citizens, and security research is so vital. And a lot of security research is sometimes putting even their, um, you know, basically personal lives on the line to do research because there always is that gray line between the legal aspect of things as well. Um, how important do you think it is, and in, 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 you know, the recognition that, you know, some people should, you know, deservedly get uh, for, for at least bringing things to the, to the surface. Yeah. You know, security researchers for me, um, you know, there's a, a Kevin Durant meme where it always says you're the real MVP uh, if you're into basketball. Um, you know, hopefully people have seen that because mm. we make that reference here. But security researchers right. are the real MVPs, right? You know, and, and you know, it, it's, it's, it's important to understand that security research drives this industry forward, whether that's you know, researching an attack mm-hmm. and understanding how that attack works. So, you know, and it's not just offensive security researchers, it's researchers that are, you know, reverse engineering malware and figuring out how they work. And, you know, the first one to get a sample and then share that out with the community so that we can all kind of break it open so that everybody else is protected. All the way to coming up with a new way of, uh, you know, identifying attacks or coming up with a new attack vector itself. Um, you know, it, security research is, is literally, you know, you talk about a building, it's the foundation for the building. Without security research, we don't mm-hmm. have any insight into security products or products in, in, in general, how well they fare against attackers or adversaries that could be potentially exploited, as well as what other adversaries are doing. So for me, you know, it's a vital component of, of everything that we do day to day at Trusted Second at Binary Defense. Research is paramount. And you know, one thing I'll say is um, a few years ago, this is about four years ago, uh, one of our folks on our team, uh, Justin Elzey, who runs our, our research team, as well as... Um, our red team and Carlos Perez runs our actual research team, but Carlos reports through, through Justin. You know, uh, Justin said, "Listen, you know, mm-hmm. it's it's getting increasingly harder for some of our more sophisticated customers for us to break in, um, and it's also you know very vital for us to have our own tooling weaponization. So you know, we invested very heavily in our own research mm-hmm. division over at TrustedSec about four and a half years ago, and and so we have a fully dedicated research team that all they do is is look at weaponization tooling detections, you know." purple teaming aspects, you know, things to that effect so that we mm-hmm. are continuously, you know, kind of spawning innovation from ourselves uh, to make our own teams better. Uh, and, it's, and it's been really successful. And I think you really need to have that today, um, whether it's public research or your own private research team, if you can if you can do it, mm-hmm. um, to really keep up with what's happening out there. And, and I really believe that, 
you know, the, the vilification of, of some of the security researchers that we've seen um, is, is really a, a myopic yeah. view of the grand scheme of things of, of, of how the whole security industry works together. Now, again, I, I, I want to say that there is responsibility that we have to have um, in the security research side, you know, dropping zero days, time yeah. of the past, right? You know, that was the cool thing to do back, you know, in the millwork days and everything else. But, you know, that mm-hmm. times have changed, you know, from that perspective, we have to focus on responsible disclosure, you know, to not impact our patients. Do no harm, yeah, right? Do, do no harm. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and I think that's an important yeah. case to remember here is that, you know, security researchers deserve the credit for the time and effort. I mean, some of these exploits, you know, it takes months and months and months of research to go and do. And it's just yeah. these brilliant minds doing incredible things. I mean, I remember when I first wrote my first zero day, you know, and it took me – and this is, this is mm-hmm. by the way, way – it was way easier back then than it is today with all the preventative mechanisms that you have, um, you know, and, and going through that, you know, when you finally take like a bug, for example, a crash and you hijack that crash and you understand mm-hmm. how the logic works and you redirect ex- execution flow and you're able to get remote code execution, you know, onto a system, it's the most amazing feeling ever. But man, mm-hmm. it took months to do something like that, right? In, in time and effort. So these security researchers should definitely get the credit that they deserve mm-hmm. um, and, and really, you know, driving the industry forward. Um, and at the same time, you know, obviously be responsible with it, but we, we should recognize that and we should continuously promote that because mm-hmm. it's it's important for the industry to to continuously move it forward or else our adversaries are are not going to slow down. I mean, it's not like, hey, Russia, China, yeah. Iran, North Korea, like we're just going to stop hacking tomorrow. Not going to happen, right? You know? <laughs> You're actually build, building teams yeah. to do specifically just that. So um, so we have to, we have to mean, you know, Make sure that our resources are, are getting skilled and 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 taught to things quickly as well. Mike, did you want you want to, anything more? In the- yeah, no, I was just yeah a little bit. Just so we were talking a little bit about um, you know learning and how the information sharing goes. And I think one of the things that I learned for, for, over my career is going to certain conferences and and yeah. things like that has been a great way. Even as a software dev, you know, going to some of these has what has led to me being in more security oriented uh, technologist, mm-hmm. if you will. Um, depending on who you ask. Uh, and so, you know, I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. I think that's a great, I think one of the nice, like one of the pluses that came out of COVID is how many of these uh, conferences that were totally 100% in real life have now have a virtual aspect. And I think it really opens the door. And I'm just curious mm-hmm. what your thoughts are on how to get, you know, sort of more people to these conferences. Yeah, and, conferences, and conferences are, are really important. You know, for like for one, the relationship aspect is, is key. Like mm-hmm. that's probably number one for me, right? You get to meet, peers in your industry yeah. or somebody that is like-minded to you that you can learn from. And that's really important. You know, when I was uh, first coming into the industry, um, it was a very different industry. There wasn't a lot of technical information out there. There wasn't documents. There wasn't training courses. There wasn't college programs for, for cybersecurity. And, you know, I, I got lucky because I got part of a group that was called Remote Exploit at the time in IRC. And Remote Exploit eventually turned into Offensive mm-hmm. Security. Um, so, you know, the guys that made Backtrack and in, in IMAX and Wapix and, and Cali, yeah. um, and I became very good friends with Mutz, uh, Maddie, mm-hmm. and, you know, and I was able to learn from that whole group and that whole team and become kind of one of their, their core members. So I was on the Backtrack development team. I helped with XYDB. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, I learned a ton from people that, that you know, were, were figuring things out that hadn't been done before. And that was really instrumental for me, having that type of peer group that we can learn off of one another and then, you know, Really skyrocketed my career, so mm-hmm. I think you know, uh, you know, connections, networking, especially that you get at these events, either it's in person or remote, um, are really important. But also, you know, you find a topic that you like, and you can take you know a security researcher's topic, and you can expand on that, right? You can take that 
that that concept and use that somewhere else that to make it even better. Um, and that that's the mm-hmm. cool part about this industry. I think conferences really provide a lot of great value, both from a talk perspective as well yeah. as you know the, the the networking you know aspects. Obviously, you know I started a conference called DerbyCon with a few of my my good buddies. You know the the biggest thing with DerbyCon mm-hmm. was that that community feel where if you're brand new to the industry or you're you know yeah. seasoned, everybody was on the same level. And we're all working together to try to help one another. Um, and you look at that, you know, you have the same type of feel at B-Sides. I'm a huge fan of Wild West Hacking Fest with John Strand's group. Mm-hmm. I think it was a really great one. Um, I always go to Deadwood. I love it there. It's just like a middle of nowhere, you know, feel like you're in the old Wild West. Uh, and uh, what, uh, One that I recently went to uh, was like, uh, digitally was uh, Colonel Con, which was fantastic. Colonel, Colonel Con was awesome. Um, watching Joe Grand running around trying to find burners to, to, to do some solving. Joe is amazing. Was quite Joe is amazing. <laughs> uh, one of my heroes in the security industry and, and, and a friend. Uh, and uh, it, it went great. I was, I was there in person, uh, you know, two years ago, um, mm-hmm. you know, prior, prior pandemic and a uh, phenomenal mm-hmm. run conference as well. And these, you, I think what you see is a lot of these yeah. smaller, um, tight knit conferences for me are a lot better yeah. than the large size conferences. I feel like I get lost in the big conferences. Like, you know, I feel overwhelmed uh, at the big conferences. Like I can't mm-hmm. network. I can't socialize. I don't know where to go. Um, there's just a lot of stuff out there. These smaller yeah. size conferences, it's definitely much more intimate and you get to hang out with people, meet new people. Um, and, and that's the thing a lot of problem I think we have with DerbyCon is that, you know, DerbyCon started off with this as, as a, you know, small tight knit, you know, um, you know, conference and then just blew up mm-hmm. to epic proportions. We're like, Hey, this isn't really what we signed up for. You know, this is too much. We don't, we're just running this for fun. We don't want <laughs> 5,000 people at a conference. Um, so we kind of bowed out on that, but, you know, it's it's one of those things where you look at the the tight knit conferences, like what B sides is, and a lot of the ones that spawn around there, and you just find so much mm-hmm. value from those 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 types of conferences. I love going to smaller size conferences. In fact, when I get asked to do smaller size conferences, I prefer those over the big ones because I find it just to be so so, so much more valuable for me. Yeah, and I think one of the the downsides to the big conferences, it's like anything like re- whenever you're talking about research, right? Like when a big organization is sponsoring research or a big organization is sponsoring a talk, like there's this other motive which is to sell you on something. Yeah. Whereas when you go to the more intimate, the the smaller, the people who are just doing the research, it's more pure. It's educational. You're going to get those sort of more raw, consumable, yeah. applicable information, and yeah. they're not trying to sell you on a solution to the problem. They're just showing you the cool tools. And I 100% agree with the pick a topic that you're interested in and it's going to be applicable to other things. Oh, yeah. I learned so much from the car hacking guys that applied (laughs) to what we were doing with like, (laughs) I mean, we we were building a totally like a totally unrelated system, but it had a message bus. And so all of the lessons that, you know, and and the nice thing is we could actually throw real technology at ours because we weren't limited by the budget of what a car can do and the timing and all the rest of it. And so seeing what they're able to do and then being like, aha, Mm -hmm. this is what we need to do in our system to protect against those types of attacks. There's it. It's just so interesting. I, I definitely encourage people, even if you're not really, you know, interested in security research or a, you know, mm-hmm. becoming that type of um, security person, if you're involved in technology, if you're a software developer, you get so much benefit out of mm-hmm. attending these things. And I think the, the opportunity, look for opportunities to, to learn um, what the other side is doing because you'll, mm-hmm. it just pays benefits. And I guess that gets back to that whole purple mm-hmm. team, red team, blue team, and, and how we can work together as an organization to just improve security. Um, right. Or not as an organization, but as a, as a, Industry. I look at, I look at like um, look the at the old old school days of DEF CON at Alexis Park, right? And and I think that type of model works mm-hmm. extremely successful because 
you know, I, I remember uh, when I first uh, I was in the military at the time and they flew me out to go to go to DEF CON and I had just turned 21, uh, which was a mistake to go to Vegas when you first turned 21. <laughs> uh, like literally turned 21, like two days before I got to Vegas. Uh, but um, uh, the, the best part about Alexis Park is, you know, I remember seeing some of like my early heroes in the security industry, like the Schmoo Group, for example, or CDC. And I remember seeing, you know, Bruce Potter up on stage and they, they had just done a they had like this UPS box that, you know, they would physically break into a location. And it was also, you know, it looked like a UPS, but it was, you know, actually sending all the data back and, you know, doing man in the middle attacks and all this other stuff, like giving a remote access, and, you know, and a lot of the, you know, and they did it for fun. You know, it was just like, we're going to do this because it's awesome and it sounds cool. And it's, you know, yeah, and that's what you get because from those intimate type, <laughs> right, type like things where it's like, you know, someone's like, Hey, this mm-hmm. is exciting for me. And this is awesome. I want to share this with my peers and my friends in an intimate type of environment where I'm not, you know, at this big stage on, you know, where I got to have ATM spitting out cash and stuff like that, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's a different type of perspective and it's, it's that community, right? You know, we, we talk about, you heard the concept of tribes, mm-hmm. you know, the tribe of hacker books, the you know tribes you have, you know, yeah. there, there's, there's a tribe, yeah. there's tribes, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of tribes inside of the information security industry, the community aspect of tribes to me is, is the most fascinating and probably the most mm-hmm. collaborative and sharing that continuously drives the industry forward. Those security researchers, you know, as a great example, wanting to share that information with tribes that are similar to themselves. So, yeah. you know, it's 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 really that 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 fundamental piece where we're all working together for one common goal to make the world a better place. That is that is a noble cause. It's one that I think is really good. And I think those small conferences really promote that. And you know, to give it out to the the, the conference organizers. I mean, it's so much stress running those and, and you know expenses and hopefully you get yeah. you know sponsors to be able to to do it. There's companies like yourself. Obviously, I've seen you you folks mm-hmm. sponsor a number of of conferences out there before I've seen your name all over the place. So, you know, kudos to you for, 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 um, the, the, um, mm-hmm. fostering of that community, but, you know, we have to continuously foster that because the industry is getting very large, but we still have to have that intimate yeah. setting that it needs to be important. Yeah. Yeah. We have to attract well, right. new talent. And we talents. need to continue yeah. to grow it. Yeah, we have to get right. new talent and, and people to come in because when people look at the industry, it's right. quite scary. And that's one thing I wanted to touch on Dave was, is that, you know, I've seen in the past year, I've seen it, you know, kind of growing, is around um, definitely around the mental health side of things because we we are very dedicated and passionate into what we do. Um, you know, I've spent countless hours and days just getting into research and getting stuck into things, and sometimes you forget to even step out and you know see the daylight. And I've seen it, you know, probably be more in the past year, I guess, because of the pandemic and everyone working remotely, and we're losing that, you know, we're losing the intimacy from the conferences because we're not being able to, you know, meet up with your friends and your peers to do that sharing. And I've seen a lot of increase in social media in the past year where people are struggling. Uh, people are you know, struggling by not getting that social aspect, by not being able to um, you know, get into the community. And sometimes, you know, what do you recommend you know, in the industry? You know, do you recommend, uh, you know, how do people get help um, if they are struggling? You know, what's, what's the way that, you know, some indications of you know, people uh, to reach out? Or to yeah, that's even that's one of the, my biggest fears for any of my employees at Trusted Sector Binary Defense, right? And, and, and you know, it's, it's what we call burnout, mm-hmm. right? Burnout is a real thing in our industry because you know, yep. as you mentioned, we are very passionate about what we do. We always want to continuously help. And, and we forget that that we need to take time for ourselves um, and that our personal lives need to be more than just cybersecurity. Now, now there's a difference. You know, for me, I made cybersecurity my hobby, right? So, you know, I, I, I you know, play around <laughs> hacking and stuff like that for fun. But but there's a time where you need to, to decompress. You need to give your mind a break. You need to go out for a walk. You need to do fitness. You need to do you know, spend time with your family, um, you know, all those things are, are extremely important uh, to prevent burnout. And you also need to take time off, you know, and that's the 
thing, you know, we, 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 we yeah. force PTO to our employees as much as possible. Like I, I, I probably send a once a month, monthly reminder saying, listen, please, 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 please take time mm-hmm. off. Like, I don't care, you know, if, if there's a pandemic, I know there's a pandemic yeah. out, just take time off and hang out at your house, you know, do what you need to do for yourself because the time that you mm-hmm. need to decompress and to unwind is, is so paramount to your, your overall stability, both as a, as a uh, employee, but also mm-hmm. just as a person. And that's the most important thing is that we're all people here. You know, you know, you see these, these folks that, yep. you know, and, and, and there's a, you know, a term called imposter syndrome and things like that, where, you know, people feel like, well, mm-hmm. Hey, I'm kind of riding off the back of others, or, you know, I, you know, I, I I'll, I'll never be to a certain level of a certain person. That's not the case. You know, we're all here to share our perspectives of our, our of our life experiences, you know, and, and our, our experiences are mm-hmm. unique to us. So you shouldn't worry about being an imposter. You know, your experiences are you, right? And it doesn't mean that you are a expert in car yeah. hacking. You know, you know, that's somebody else, right? You, you haven't spent your entire career focusing on car hacking. But hey, you mm-hmm. spent your entire career working in this area and, and I would consider you an expert in this area. Do you know everything? No, I don't know everything. I learn something new every single day. So, you know, yeah. we, we have to recognize that there's no way that we can know everything. We have to take time for ourselves uh, and we have to recognize when we're burning out. And that's the biggest challenge I think I see most people run through is, is recognizing mm-hmm. the symptoms of burnout. Yeah. And Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think the imposter syndrome one mm-hmm. is one. So my dev team, a few, probably about a month or two ago, we were all just sort of talking. We have a nice mm-hmm. range of um, experience and, and years in, in the industry. And I think one of the most universal themes, especially amongst the more senior people, was not just that they sort of suffered from imposter syndrome, but the the fact that they were able to recognize it mm-hmm. and like turn it into a positive. And like, that's for me as well. Like, I know what I know and I know what I don't know. And like, yes, sometimes mm-hmm. I feel a little bit like I'm an imposter or whatever, but I let that drive me and I let Absolutely. that like help me to understand like that's why I have people like Jonathan on my team mm-hmm. who can really keep me up to date and I can, you know, he makes me look good and and stuff like that. And I think it's an, it's an important thing to recognize that like, yes, yeah. just accept it and learn how to how to like deal with it in a so positive absolutely. way and, and turn it into a positive. Yeah, I think for me, yeah, Dave, one of the things is that the only, the most valuable thing in this entire world is our time. And if we don't take time for ourselves, you know, that, that's, that's the most valuable asset is the time that we have in this, in this earth. And if we don't take that time, you can never get it back. It's, it's, it's a, it's a right. one, it's a one way road. It's a one way street that you can't mm-hmm. reverse it. You know, if you get your time machine to work, <laughs> I'll be the first person. Unless you're working on it, unless you have a DeLorean <laughs> that you have to be working on. Let and... me tell you, I've been, I've been <laughs> trying to get that done so, soon, but uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it only make you go back in time, but it won't be our on the future, but it won't change your age. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, but I want to, you know, I think it, that's a great point to, to end on. And I think it's really important is that, you know, absolutely, you know, take care of yourself as you're, you're the number one important person and always make sure to take time. And if you do find that you're burning out, you don't know how to deal with it. Um, definitely reach out to somebody, you know, there's a lot of people on social media, whether it be myself, Dave or others that will basically be there to, 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 you know, point you in the right direction or, 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 or just provide you a set of ears to listen to. Um, so Dave, any, any final thoughts for the, for the, sh- uh, for the audience uh, that you'd recommend? Yeah. One thing I wanted to share to close out with is I, I sent an email just last Friday. So May 28th of 2021, mm-hmm. um, to my entire company about burnout. And I do this once a quarter, um, just to remind everybody that it's not a sign of weakness, um, that it's a sign of strength to recognize burnout. I just wanted to read it really quick if you're okay with that. I sent this out to my entire company. 
Absolutely. Yeah, so as I'll say I said, please, hey, all, I hope all, uh, everybody's ready for a nice, long and relaxing weekend here soon. I wanted to send out a reminder to everybody that burnout is a real thing. And recognizing that if you're burned out, it isn't a sign of weakness, it's a strength. We do some amazing work here and our customers and our performance levels are always at the highest capacity. That requires us to continuously be racking our brains and going above and beyond in every aspect. I like to compare us to top athletes for various sports. Athletes are required uh, to physically put their bodies through continual strain and stress on an ongoing basis. However, they focus very heavily on ensuring their bodies have a chance to recover and take the time needed for that. Very similarly here, we're flexing our brain muscles on a regular basis and performing at an athlete level. Your brain needs the time to unwind, uh, to be there for family and friends, and to recover from the daily stressors we put our minds through. It's important to take PTO and time off for yourself and for your family. It's equally important to, to not overwork yourself and recognizing when you are. If you are burning out or feeling stressed, please let us know. Again, we don't view this as a sign of weakness, but a sign of strength. And I kind of go on after that, but just want to say, you know, as, as much as I love working with every single one of you, at the end of the day, our lives are far more than work. Being there for family, being there for yourselves, and doing things that are hobbies and interests is what your life is about. Uh, we'll never look at someone taking time off or a reduction in workload or falling behind as a weakness here. Um, so just, you know, that was kind of the, the message I sent out to the entire team just to say, listen, you know, mm -hmm. if you're struggling, just let us know. Like we can't, we can't, we can't help you if we, if we don't know. And that's, you know, one thing I think important for managers, yeah. especially in InfoSec is to recognize that we put our, our folks through a lot of stuff um, that we yeah. require them to do on their day-to-day basis is, and they're so compassionate uh, about doing that work and, and they know that it's, mm -hmm. it's for the greater good. So they, get wrapped up in those day-to-day -day aspects. So, you know, we have to recognize when burnout's there and really help our folks um, as it goes along. But, you know, close on that, you know, mental health is important. You know, industry-wide, I'm, I'm actually really optimistic on, on where we're at and where we're heading at from an industry perspective. I think yet we're, you know, at a spot now that we never have been in the security industry. Um, and it's, I think it's, you know, we're mm -hmm. going to have definitely challenges. Uh, you know, we're going to have organizations continue to get breached. But at the same time, I think we have the right mindset of, of defensible strategies. Awesome. So absolutely. I absolutely. think that was amazing. And uh, I think that's not just a message to your employees now, but everyone who's listening uh, to really take that, you know, whatever company or whatever you're doing is really take that message and and, and make it actionable. Um, you know, as I mentioned, time is the, is the most important asset we have on this earth. So uh, use it wisely. So Dave, it's been awesome having you on the show. It's been an honor. Uh, Mike, great having you all, you know, leading the co-host and, and, and the show today. Uh, so it's always awesome. It's fantastic. So for the audience out there, you know, definitely tune in for One Access Tonight. We're here to provide you, you know, as much education as value as possible. And hopefully you get some lessons and some great ideas to really make the world a safer place. So again, thanks for listening. It's been awesome. Take care. Thanks, everybody. You Appreciate time. it. Learn how your team can get a free trial of Cybrae for Business by going to www.cybrae.it slash business. This podcast is also brought to you by Thycotic, the leader in privileged access management. To learn more, visit www.thycotic.com.